Hi everybody, this is Loretta from Next Sequence and you're listening to the Next Sequence podcast. More and more tech bio founders out there like myself before going from entrepreneur to investor have been trying to bring in computing technologies to biotech. In this show, I sit down with some of the most impressive founders of what we call now tech bio to learn more about their journey and inspire other founders or wannabe founders to follow in their tracks. TechBio is all about fixing the problem of the world, and the world needs more and more TechBio founders. So, listen up. Hi, so welcome to this new TechBio episode by Next Sequence, and we are here today to welcome Max Dunhill. Director of ISV at Oracle Cloud. Hi, Max. How are you doing? Hello, Loretta. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Amazing. I'm super excited. We talked a little bit while back in March, and so I was super excited when I realized, oh my God, we could actually do a podcast with you. This is unique. As you know, we've been working on promoting Tech Bio, and we started with the first series dedicated founders. Uh, last week, we actually opened up this uh, series to investors and other stakeholders in the ecosystem. And so this is a really, really first uh, from uh, director of ISV. I think this is an amazing perspective that you can bro- bring to our founders. And so we're really looking forward to this discussion. So as usual, we always start uh, with you as a person. So tell us a bit more about you. Where are you coming from? Where did you study? And how did you arrive at Oracle? Thank you, Loretta. Absolutely. And uh, before before getting going, I just want to add the, the uh, qualification that uh, although indeed I am director ISV ecosystem at Oracle, the views here today are, are my own and, and do not necessarily reflect the, the views of Oracle. And so indeed, uh, I'm based out of Amsterdam and uh, where I live with uh, my my partner and our son and our dog. And it's been uh, close to seven years that I've been in the Netherlands and uh, coming up to four at Oracle. And uh, what I've seen over the last four years is a seismic shift in in the cloud industry uh, towards generative AI, and I think we'll come to that later. But um, uh, if I backtrack a bit, and uh, my 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 background is I did a degree in politics, specialising in international political economy, and uh, that that's not necessarily uh, a path that all take who end up uh, yeah working with the cloud. And yeah, for me, what I found is that uh, when I was a student, I I was really looking for a, a sort of all uh, a closed uh, system way of understanding the world. And first, uh, that was history, and I I love to study history, and yeah, then it became not topical enough for me in terms of explaining the present day. So I moved towards politics. And uh, after doing politics for four years, I, I still had so many questions about how the world worked. And so my, uh, my curiosity uh, led me towards tech. And uh, I, after, yeah, uh, several years in tech now, I, I, I find that sort of closed system where uh, it seems that there's just about 
sort of uh, deterministic answer to most questions that can be asked about this topic. And so, yeah, my my curiosity and uh, desire for uh, answers uh, has really been met uh, it working in tech. And so that journey after my degree in politics took me first to being a startup founder. And that was an ed tech company that matched tutors and students together based on the strength of their personality compatibility. That company using uh, third party NLP APIs came from this recognition that I had that uh, throughout my studies, the more that I found myself invested in a particular subject, the more it tended to be because of the affinity that I shared with the teacher that was teaching it. And so I, I thought, and it, it, it came to me during a, a Vipassana 10 day silent meditation retreat, what if this uh, sort of matching could become programmatic? What if these uh, teachers and students could be matched together based on the strength of their personality compatibility? And conveniently also, it would save parents a lot of time because it would mean that with equally qualified tutors, they didn't need to spend half an hour interviewing the top 10 tutors that they thought were relevant for their child. So leveraging the, at the time, the uh, IBM Watson uh, NLP API for the big five personality to infer personality from text, I created that platform with the help of my co-founders and the team, fundraised and uh, spent time growing it and eventually exited it through a, a trade sale. And then when it came to my next adventure, I became aware of what at the time was the Oracle for Startups program. And I was just completely surprised at the gap between the perception that I had of Oracle on the one hand and the reality of the amount of value that was being offered by the company to early stage businesses. And I have to say that uh, before I joined Oracle, I had, I had certain perceptions of, of the business as a, as a legacy company, not particularly innovative. And yet what I realized is that there is so much dynamism at this company, even after 40 plus years in operation, especially when it comes to partners and uh, the startup ISV ecosystem. And for example, the opportunity, I'm just going to turn my video off because it seems there's a, a delay. Um, yeah, so uh, the, the sheer dynamism that the company offers and that dynamism is around not only the uh, incessant pace, which we seem to have, as uh, latecomers, let's be clear, to, to the cloud. So what that meant is that we built a Gen 2 cloud, taking stock of everything that went with that first generation of, of cloud infrastructure and uh, taking the best and uh, leaving the rest, if you will. So what that translates to with our cloud is, for example, our RDMA networking for training large models on GPUs. Uh, so RDMA, uh, I think it's remote direct memory access. And uh, regardless of what the abbreviation stands for, it's the ability for, no, uh, for different nodes of GPUs to 
access each other's memory, bypassing the operating system. And when it comes to training large models, which we'll come to later, I'm sure, uh, latency is, is key because there's just so much information that needs to be processed and reprocessed that uh, we were able to create this unique RDMA network because we built our cloud from the ground up. And not only that, we had the best practice networking knowledge that came from our acquisition of Sun Microsystems. And so we, we have this networking talent that was able to recognize the value that's on offer by partners like NVIDIA and uh, take that latest hardware, uh, first the A100s and now the Hopper, the, the H100 generation, and not only create top spec servers uh, individually with eight cards of GPUs, but also be able to network them together in a unique and market leading way. So that's eight times the uh, eight times smaller latency than our nearest competitors and four times larger network throughput. So I realize perhaps that I've gone way too technical, way too quickly. <laughs> and if I, if I can zoom out a sec and uh, talk out a bit more about the other aspects of the dynamism of, of Oracle that made me interested in joining the company as after my time as a founder, it was not only a differentiated cloud offering, being able to offer value to deep tech companies that were looking to build their product with third party tools like, like those of Oracle, it was also the opportunity to jointly go to market together. Now, yes, Loretta, I see, yeah, you're coming in. Yeah, I, I was, uh, I think uh, what you're uh, threading to your ear was uh, a very nice transition because uh, you will bring it back uh, uh, in the look from the founder's perspective. And I think that's very important one. Um, because indeed, I think uh, it was very honest from you uh, to straight away address, uh, I think, the common perception that is right now regarding Oracle. Uh, as a founder uh, myself, as someone with work in cloud, I've seen uh, at that time, because Oracle was, of course, considered as a competitor, I've seen uh, the entering of Oracle into the cloud market, albeit, as you mentioned, uh, pretty late compared to the original uh, threes, and then uh, moving up into the Gardner quadrants to to become uh, this uh, I would say unstoppable force that cannot be just ignored uh, when it comes to cloud computing. So uh, it is true that even right now, when founders are thinking about uh, cloud infrastructure, I would tend to say that uh, Oracle is not necessarily. Uh, the first that will come to mind for the, to them, that's for sure. And so I wanted to know from your perspective now, uh, what would be uh, the reason why founders, uh, especially tech bio founders, uh, who are really building on top of uh, infrastructure, uh, thinking about biotech as a platform and not as a very um, monolith, a verticalized uh, um, platform. How would you address them and why would they uh, have interest in choosing uh, to consider Oracle into their uh, infrastructure of choice? Absolutely. And for me, it, it's one theme, the idea of a, a virtuous circle. And 
that when the the right partners with the right tools come together, then it, it, they, there can be a, a self-perpetuating, uh, yeah, uh, feedback loop um, that uh, stand that where everyone stands to benefit. And so, not only do we have the latest hardware for founders to build their deep tech solutions with, we also have this vast ecosystem of partners, of customers. I think there's a stat that uh, Oracle has over 430,000 customers and that in any given day, users of the internet interact either directly or indirectly with 70 pieces of Oracle tech, be that Java, be that MySQL. And so it's, it's a vast ecosystem which founders can get plugged into. And honestly, coming as a founder, I thought that uh, being in a large corporate environment would have been just uh, endless processes to follow and uh, things moving very slowly. Now, it's not to say that there are not processes to follow, of course, but what I'm trying to say is that for these uh, early uh, biotech founders, the room for innovation and change at Oracle is huge, uh, not only in terms of adopting technology, bringing that jointly to customers, uh, but also talking about it. So if we look at uh, Oracle's most recent quarterly earnings, our founder, Larry Ellison, called out the work of, uh, uh, of, a, of a medical ISV that we did together. Uh, so a company called Ronan and the work that we did uh, on uh, uh, early uh, and consistent cancer detection uh, in patients in a hospital context. And that, that's to show that it's not that we're paying lip service to innovation. It's, it's that it's at the very core of the company, it's DNA and something that we're willing to highlight even in our quarterly earnings. And so for me, it, it's it's that innovation and that virtuous circle where when things get in motion, good things happen. You, you guys have been building up uh, in, I would say impressively when it comes to being able to keep in touch with the latest development. I think one of the uh, most surprising for me uh, announcement that uh, Oracle has made was definitely the partnership with our, uh, NVIDIA. Being able to see NVIDIA shoes, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, for its AI services was for me kind of a big deal uh, because we all know uh, the role that NVIDIA plays right now. You cannot say uh, obviously the word AI or think about AI without thinking NVIDIA. I think uh, it comes with the territory. And so for me, it was kind of a big deal to see that partnership. And so could you tell us more about how this affected uh, the work that we've been trying to do at the ISV ecosystem, but also what it brought and what it uh, brings in terms of possibility to the ecosystem? Absolutely. And yeah, it, uh, this partnership with NVIDIA is, is one of the many reasons why it's, it's such an exciting time to be at Oracle. And what it means is that generative AI is a seismic event, not only in the technology industry, but cross industry. And having said that, it's it's a technology that this development is is so concentrated in the hands of, of not only uh, 
a, a few companies, but also the talent required to uh, build and, and maintain these foundation models, there are just not that many people out there that can do it. And so what, what I find so exciting about this partnership with NVIDIA is that we're actually offering a lot of these models, at least their architecture, as a service. And that minimizes a lot of the heavy lifting that partners need to do to implement these generative AI technologies in their companies. And you might say to me, well, Max, that's all fine and dandy. Having said that, OpenAI have their ChatGPT and API access to their model, so who cares? Well, actually, for a lot of enterprises, it's you, you can't just send sensitive proprietary data to these companies because that data is stored. And there's also, and I can't quite remember what the article is and its full specification, but there's there's actually uh, some, something to do with uh, American intellectual property law, whereby if, uh, if a company uses uh, a, a third party uh, piece of machine learning to uh, develop on top of it, then it can be argued that the uh, product that's built on top of it is, is of the ownership of, of the underlying, the creators of the underlying technology. So of course, NVIDIA is still a commercial company, so that doesn't rule out uh, that completely. Having said that, it, it, it's a question of um, the uh, sort of competitive forces in the market. And so there are other companies in the industry who are taking a, a sort of a consolidated approach, shall we say, uh, developing not only their own hardware, but also developing their own industry solutions. And so my understanding, again, this is my personal perspective, is that what we're, what we're doing at Oracle, it's about choice and it's about independence. And so we're not building our own hardware. We're leaving that up to NVIDIA. And we're also providing the tool set so that our partners can leverage these technologies in a way that is uh, consistent with their data sovereignty concerns and also empowers all to access this technology in, in, a, in a truly democratic way uh, because any company now can come bring their own data and fine-tune these models uh, so we're thinking of nvidia nemo for text nvidia picasso for uh, images and oh uh, of course i get a mind blank on the most relevant one which is the one for uh, biotech yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, and thanks for bringing Parabricks up, actually, because it, it was just a few days ago that we we ran a benchmark of Parabricks on on OCI. And again, yeah, I, I'm, I, at risk of uh, yeah tooting my own horn too much here, we 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 completely uh, hit it out of the park when it came to uh, the the benchmarks on Parabricks. Nineteen minutes for the whole germline 
sequencing of NVIDIA Parabricks on OCI. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've known Parabricks for some time now. I think uh, it was one of the first technology that I started to assess when I really started to focus around uh, 2019. Uh, it was not as well known as it is right now, and I, I really do work that uh, with uh, the development of uh, tech bio and uh, the mainstream lining of uh, tech coming to bio, more and more people will be talking about the work that NVIDIA has been investing over the years into building uh, the different layers and including the software layers. So Parabrix is actually very interesting indeed. And uh, wow, congrats to you uh, on the performances. I think uh, sometimes often uh, we tend to get stuck on, you know, kind of these kind of KPI purely focus on improving pure hardware performances. But I found out that when it comes to uh, tech bio, these, uh, I would say, performances means a lot because behind them, uh, it's actually really use cases to which you can really reconnect mentally. You know that uh, sequencing faster means what it means, especially after two years of COVID, we know the importance of sequencing. We know the importance of being able to to get to the top uh, of what you are being, uh, you're studying right now and what you're trying to achieve in terms of research and development. So uh, it's actually indeed a real performances and uh, I will let our audience uh, dig, dive onto it into the different articles that we might link with the podcast. But definitely um, that was uh, for me kind of a highlight. Uh, I saw uh, a couple of, uh, I would say news uh, not necessarily uh, all of them are public around uh, that uh, performance uh, enhancement. And that was for me something that needed to be addressed. I think um, when I'm hearing you, I could clearly see that there's been a series here, there because you've been uh, at Oracle now for uh, more than seven years. So you do have this, um, I would say, bird's eye view on how the tech ecosystem shifted and how, uh, at least the way that I feel it, uh, bio is now playing a bigger and bigger role. So maybe with your own words, could you tell us how you, you went through these different phases over the last seven years? What does did the ecosystem look like and what is it shaping to be now? Absolutely. And I, I would say that what I've noticed with the ecosystem is is uh, uh, a growing shift towards open source, specifically with with machine learning, and so it, it's with it's the, with the rise of companies like Hugging Face and uh, the democratization of access, not only to uh, a lot of models, but also to a lot of the training data. So, if we look at, at other open source projects like Eleutha and uh, their compiling of the pile as a, as a training data set for large language models, there's, there's this growing movement towards open source development in, and, and most recently with, with Databricks and uh, their, their announcement of their uh, 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 retrieval augmented human in the loop, um, I think it was a 7D model that, that they open sourced and it was just so cool. Like they, uh, in the very short time frame, uh, essentially made it a collaborative effort to uh, do this uh, augment, uh, a, a human um, augmentation uh, by labeling these data sets internally uh, of the answers of the output of a, of a non-fine-tuned large language model. 
and, and then open sourcing it. And so that's just awesome on the on a language front. Uh, what I sort of came across when uh, I, I was uh, trying to prepare for today is that I think there's close to 20,000 data sets on Hugging Face, yet less than 100 of them are uh, protein related. And so I asked myself, is that because there is a, a gold standard in uh, protein data sets that, that everyone uses or is it because these data sets are privately held by by companies which are impeding the potential development that comes from having this data in the hands of the open source community and yeah so uh, one of the thoughts that i had was i well a few years ago i i did a 23 and me uh, dna test and it, it it seems that that's just like an incredible exercise in uh, uh, data collection and data annotation because not only did I do the test, but then I had a questionnaire to fill in with uh, any uh, health uh, personally uh, uh, and then uh, from my family. And so uh, I guess uh, my, my question is, uh, to what extent could the community benefit from access to this data that in the end belongs to the community? Because I, I, I paid for this DNA test that I did. And I, I know that it's not impossible to share this data because uh, there's a really cool initiative called JetMatch in the States where I was able to upload my DNA for uh, essentially ancestry. Uh, my, uh, my mother was adopted, so I wanted to find uh, relatives in America. And I, I asked myself, could uh, people that take these, uh, DNA, these commercial DNA tests also get access to their data and pull it together for the community to do more uh, large model training on, 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 on this type of data set? Because it seems that it's something that's lacking. What are your thoughts on this, Loretta? Yeah, <laughs> this is an amazing question because you're basically giving me uh, the ability to kind of roll back on the whole reason why I started this to begin with. Uh, I, I totally agree uh, that there is technically the ability. So uh, I think when you or, or I or any technical person comes across and just uh, look at the state of well, what's happening, it's difficult to not wonder. Um, the way that I've uh, seen it and the way that I see it is uh, at the beginning I thought it was just uh, a tech question and so it was very hard to understand and I originally saw that it was because uh, the biotech and life science ecosystem uh, by um, design had been slower to adopt I would say technological tools and do their digital transformation and I think uh, a part of that view was a little bit biased it is true that uh, the industry has been slower compared to other type of industry. If you think about retail, e-commerce, or if you think even about banking and finance, uh, would have would have thought that banking would be so you know uh, forward when it comes to adopting these digital tools, and and it has changed in industry. If you think about the new bank and and everything that comes along, but um. For the biotech system, I think uh, this adoption has been slower. And I, one of the explanations for me is not really the lack of competencies. 
uh, these biotech companies are not necessarily the first top, uh, I would say, companies now. Our world has become fairly dominated by the SaaS industry. And so at the top of the food chain now in terms of uh, revenue and, and volume, you will find tech companies. But if you look down on the list, you still find uh, companies that have traditionally been dominating uh, previous uh, historical era like uh, energy and gas uh, uh, in general or big uh, retailers like Walmart or and you find uh, definitely pharmaceutical companies. So when you look at it from this perspective, you do understand very quickly that it's not for lack of revenue, for, it's not uh, for lack of capital. They have the uh, uh, capital uh, reliability to be able to uh, make the kind of investment that is necessary in terms of research and development to be able to make it happen. So where does it, where, where is the constraint and why does it not happen? I think it's a lot due to the type of data that these data represent compared to the other type of data. And if you really think about it, it has already been uh, a subject of uh, discussion. It's actually, uh, it has become, at least for Europe, and uh, this uh, trend is growing uh, even further, but it has become the battle for, uh, I would say, ethics and policy setting. And it's become part of the strategy with Europe now as this whole idea of digital sovereignty. And I think that um, when you think about uh, ethics uh, and uh, sensitive data, um, well, uh, definitely patient data fall right there in the middle. And so one of these explanations that I found uh, myself uh, contemplating has been, yeah, it's very difficult because you cannot unbox this data uh, as easily, or at least you can maybe technically, and you and I know that there is uh, the diverse way of uh, anonymizing uh, these data to make mm -hmm. sure that they cannot re relate to a person or an individual, mm -hmm. but still they are under heavy regulation. So one example that I can give you, for example, is the way that you think about what is uh, doable and not doable from one citizen to another. You very quickly thought, I would say, from a very American perspective, because you mm -hmm. said, this is my data, uh, I've paid for it, so mm -hmm. I own it. And so mm -hmm. I'm at liberty to do whatever I want with it, including mm -hmm. uploading it onto a third party platform and accepting, for example, peer-to-peer -peer sharing. Because mm -hmm. over the years, that's what I've seen. I've seen with the growth of companies like 23andMe, it mm -hmm. has brought genomics data in uh, the domain of not you know, for a small company, but it's giving it back to the hand of the hand customer. And so more and more people have been trying to do exactly that, building on top of this personal data and trying to set in place peer-to-peer -peer sharing or mm -hmm. even um, aggregation, not in a peer-to-peer -peer way, but centralization aggregation to be to allow this kind of uh, cross-sharing of information. So that's mm -hmm. All in good, I would say, from the U.S. law perspective, but I can tell you, for example, straight away as a French national, that this would not be allowed. So even if you have paid for it, even if this is your DNA, it cannot be more close to yourself than that. It's your DNA. Mm -hmm. It's basically who you are. So even with that in mind, legally, you're not allowed to upload it onto any platform and sharing uh, because we mm -hmm. prohibit 
the kind of exchanges because we want, I would say, in a way, in a way, our way of thinking the world and the way that we uh, put policies in place is preventive. So we want to avoid any pitfall that any, you know, kind of uh, ailment where people will tend to start selling themselves because this is about human uh, uh, slavery in a way. If you start mm -hmm. selling your data on yourself just to be able to make a quick back, you're basically selling yourself. So you're rolling back to slavery, or at least this is a perception that our governments have. So. It's a very tricky one because that means that very quickly you will start to see exactly what we have seen in the industry, which is hyperfragmentation. And hyperfragmentation, which is directly correlated to where your, your data is coming from, meaning what national you are from, and then it will derive the ability or not to, to exist your right on it. So I think for platform builders, providers, this has been kind of a huge constraint that requires them to maneuver very um, smoothly around it, but mm -hmm. at the same time, uh, you can see that the governments right now are gearing toward the idea of uh, maybe not allowing for citizens to share directly and sell their data, but at least sharing into um, common uh, um, area, common uh, data store, a uh, hub that is control, verifiable, and under regulation is something that uh, our governments are moving towards with. And so I've observed it first at an international level uh, because a, co a couple of years while back around uh, 2018 in France, we started this idea of uh, health data hub. So mm -hmm. it's very well named because it means what it means is basically kind of a huge central repo where hospitals uh, would actually start pooling all of the clinical uh, data that they are getting directly from the patient. And when it comes to hospital, it's actually very something very interesting because as you said, uh, there is data everywhere. Uh, there is data actually um, when people are sick. So generally these data and kind of data are generated uh, in inpatient uh, journey. So that means that the one with this data, uh, the people that are going to be treating you, uh, your general practitioner first, but generally speaking, they will tend to not, uh, I would say, digitalize and this kind of information. But when you're moving uh, up the lane, meaning when you're getting sicker and sicker, and God forbids, but when yeah. that when that happens, it's generally at the hospital level. And this is where you, you start seeing like really a lot of data. And something that is pretty ignored is um, mirror facing the, the kind of analytical data that are coming from the lab treatment that you're receiving, coming from every procedure that you're going through. There is actually, uh, when it comes to uh, real, um, I would say, bio uh, sample that is taken out of you, there is a notion of biobanks. And so mm -hmm. these biobanks, even by themselves, host, uh, I would say, a good mine, gold mine of information. So if you were to kind of uh, have the ability to aggregate uh, all of this information, whether it is from your general, you know, kind of practitioner information on your general health to the clinical uh, data that is gathered when you are sick to uh, the biosample that's been taken uh, at different point in time uh, from you uh, and that gives you a view and you combine it with the other type of data that is very crucial which is typically the data that uh, basically are gathered through any wearables, then you have a full-blown picture because it's one thing to, to have data on someone when uh, someone is sick, but you are only looking on, on the past. 
you're not able really to, um, you, you can do a lot of prediction, but you only have one part of the story. You don't know the before, before that person is actually sick, what, mm -hmm. what was the state. And so that's why these data, these variables data, they are so, so critical. And so I think there's a, there's a real need for the industry uh, towards uh, sharing of this data, but I think it's the know-how. And so that know-how is somehow very heavily impacted by uh, the need for regulation or the need for control. I mean, for uh, policies that emerge from each uh, entities. And so that makes it harder. But um, to your point, I also have seen that it's not just a matter of regulation. It's always easy, you know, to, to point these guys out as bad guys, you know, the one mm -hmm. that meant the entire ecosystem to move forward and try to stop everything to, from moving forward. But it's not just them, to be honest. It's also true, and this has been my... I would say the most of my battle. I started on the first part that we talked about the uh, type of data coming and the different type of uh, sources of this data. This is how I entered the industry because I went and worked for a biobank. And I very quickly, I decided that my battle will, will not be fought uh, on this side, but my battle will be fought exactly where, what you were pointing out, meaning the need for the industry still to have a more, uh, I would say, open source oriented approach. And so on that side, I think there's still a lot that needs to be made. And on this side, I would say that the reason why I picked this side of the battle is because I think we have a little bit more control. And when I say that we, we have a little bit more control, who are we? I would say the entire ecosystem. So mm -hmm. that's why for me, it's very important to have infrastructure uh, providers such as Oracle and Vidya and all of the others that are making the effort to provide accessible resources. So uh, access to the latest hardware so you can benefit from the latest, uh, I would say, hardware development to be able to, to, to do the best that you can on your research access to also open source libraries that sit on top of this hardware because the hardware is one thing but uh having the best hardware is not the only thing you need to connect that hardware to the already existing tools that the developers are using or you need to build new ones that we response and answer to the need of this developer community. And this is where, as you were mentioning, I think Hugging Face have been doing kind of an amazing job at trying to first serve a community and serve this model at scale, and then trying to say, okay, at the end of the day, most of the developers, you're not going to be the one actually uh, building everything from the ground up. So very few people, as you mentioned, has the ability to have uh, the kind of resources that is required to run hardware, do hardware. So the end customers of this model, well, they only concern about a very limited aspect of things. And at the end of it, it's about, okay, I want to train my model and then I want to be able to uh, basically pull them and then I want to be able to serve them at scale. And the serving them at scale is a very, very important part. And so it's, as I would say, even much more important than actually training in the building because some of the part of the training is somehow inaccessible for a lot of people. Not everyone has the ability to train a chat GPT, you know. We don't have all the resources that are required to, to train petas and dread of data of uh, on, on, on a model. So we need to be, I would say, more conscious about what the, community is expecting because it will condition uh, what we need to us as service providers serve to this community. 
And so, yes, we need actors like Oracle and NVIDIA providing the hardware, the software on top of it. But I think that from the developers also, but also from the researchers, and this is where we started to work uh, to bridge the two communities, there was a need to actually uh, make sure that software is coming to bio, but it needs to go the other way around too, meaning um, researchers need to adopt these technologies. And so they need to be trained into understanding uh, transformers and they need to be trained into computing, computer vision and et cetera. And mm -hmm. so I think that uh, I think that was the first step of what needed to be built and in the future beyond just like bringing together two communities, we definitely now need to fast forward and move to the stage where instead of thinking about bio as this um, monolith where basically we are like software 30 years ago, meaning very proprietary, we have an approach where uh, we have an open source approach first. And we understand that we build on top of each other, you know, like typically yeah. right now, there is no one is right mind that will build a building layer. No, you don't <laughs> build your you don't build your own TPE. It is it's yeah. insane, you know. Yeah. 30 years ago, when people were building websites, this is what everyone was doing. Everyone had to build, you know, a kind of a HR system, everyone mm. needed to build its own billing system and etc. So now we have like stripes, we have mm -hmm. different kinds of service provider that we are relying on, even in cloud, uh, when we think about key value pairing, we think Ashicorp, you know, like <laughs> we have different kind of service provider for every element of the layer stack. So this is what tech bio mean. This is the very definition of tech bio. And this is why tech bio founders look nothing like the others because they understand that paradigm shift. They understand that when they're building the product, they're not building a product in a very vertical vertical way where they're trying to be biomanufacturer, where they're trying to be clinical trial uh, experts, where they're trying to be all of the layers at once. Now, they pick one layer, they know what value they are bringing, they become very good at it, and they operationalize it in a way where data computing is very important because it's a competitive advantage. They use it to go faster. So instead of running 10 years of research, they are able to go from idea to product to market in the span of five years, which is basically cutting things by two. So yeah, for me, there's the topic that you brought about why, why, why is it that the ecosystem is not, you know, kind of at the same level as it should be comparatively. It's a very important one. And yes, it's uh, it's the, the hill to die on, at least for me. But I think mm -hmm. that if we manage to make that shift, I think the benefit of it will be uh, tremendous because we've seen what happened in, in tech, in software. Once we started to have this open source approach, the entire ecosystem blossomed. And so for me, the analogy work uh, exactly the same, except that bio is more fundamental because with biology, you can basically manufacture everything that we consume or we produce and so it will affect our ability to address climate change it will affect our ability to address issues on food and agriculture it will address a lot of the issues that we might have on the way that we're dressing ourselves and the, the way that we're building fashion so it's fundamental it's really the key for for what needs to be done but i'm, I'm just like <laughs> getting on and on obviously like 
this is uh, the topic for for all my life. I think I will be working on this for the rest of my life, definitely. But coming back to you, coming back to our call, uh, what would be because there have been so many announcements, and uh, definitely the Oracle and Vidya latest announcement was uh, very thrilling for the uh, ecosystem, at least on our side. And uh, I was um, very eager to know what would it look like for you in the future when you're thinking about the ecosystem and you're thinking about this coming of uh, bio. What are you thinking about when you're thinking about the future and what Oracle is going to be positioning itself? But especially you as a person, what are you looking for? I mean, I, I'm I'm fascinated at the opportunities for personalized medicine. So, uh, looking at uh, and again, uh, very much from a layman's perspective. Having said that, it, it's something that I find very interesting. Uh, for example, probiotics and the extent to which uh, everyone has a unique gut health, and that it, it's possible to have the right probiotic for for the right person and i i, I look at the uh, power of parallelized computing and and really feel like there's still so much that can be done uh, to uh, further explore personalized medicine and also uh, with a bit of uh sort of uh i'm not sure what the right word is uh not doubt uh maybe not apprehension but it, it just feels like very much uh, the community at the moment is a uh, uh, transformer for x so that uh, uh transformer is this miracle architecture that it will solve all human problems and uh, of course uh, with the results of alpha failed show that in terms of uh, sequencing the human genome that it, it is indeed a revolutionary approach. Having said that, I, I also uh, think back to uh, my high school theory of knowledge classes and uh, uh, Thomas S. Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolution. That uh, So we're, we're in such a mentality of the moment of, of, of transformer for everything that are we neglecting other approaches that uh, could also offer a lot of insights to uh, uh, yeah, uh, maximizing longevity and uh, uh, minimizing ill health and ideally also uh, uh, preventative medicine. And so uh, one of these uh, sort of areas of mathematics that I find fascinating is uh, topological data analysis and uh, a, a different way of uh, mapping complex uh, relationships in high dimensional space and so yeah this is sort of a, a call out to the community to, to any listeners if uh, if there is any relevance of uh, topological data analysis uh, to to your work i'd be pretty curious to connect because i'm following the work of a swiss company called giotto who provide a, a topological data analysis python package open source and uh, i'm just I, I came across this when reading uh, the, about the founder of Renaissance Technology, uh, this uh, uh, yeah uh, high frequency trading company, and and it seems that they use topological data analysis to uh, detect underlying trends in the market. And uh, yeah, uh, uh, financial data is is also uh, yeah uh, highly. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, complex to, to map. And I, I asked myself, could there be a parallel of topological data analysis being applied to uh, to uh, genetic uh, to, to, to genetics 
And so, yeah, personalized medicine, different approaches to data analysis. And uh, I, I just think it, it's it's all of this enabled by hardware, uh, the power of which is, is, is difficult to comprehend in terms of the, uh, yeah, uh, raw computing power that uh, an H100 can do. Uh, yeah, uh, it, and then when you connect them, uh, so as one thing I didn't mention that on ACI now you can have super clusters of uh, up to 4,096 nodes. So you need to times that by eight, and this is where my mental math fails, but that, that's, an, that's an idea of the order of magnitude of, of clusters of GPUs that, that you can have nowadays. And just experimenting and uh, w within the confines of, I, I, I think also what was, what was alluded to and what you said before is the importance of, of regulation. I think, I think that for the community, it, it needs to be self-regulation because by, by nature, regulation is backwards looking. And this is a space that is moving so quickly. And again, because the uh, technical understanding of it is is really rocket science. Um, and I, 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 after five years of trying to, to get to grip to it, I'm still scratching my head on a daily basis as to quite how this technology works. Um, but, but so I think the idea that uh, state regulators can, can uh, effectively uh, manage the development of this technology, I think, uh, could be misleading and instill a false sense of confidence. And so I look at financial markets and, for example, ISTA to, to regulate derivatives. And uh, yeah, I think I think the community, hugging face, uh, deep mind, and, and the likes need to come together, perhaps, and volunteer one member to, to create a foundation where they, they evaluate these models in a sandbox for, before they're put into production. So yeah, uh, personalized medicine, different approaches and effective regulation are the three things that I'm particularly interested in and, and paying attention to over the coming weeks and months. Yeah, I think it's an amazing wrap-up because uh, you basically pointed out the different uh, perspective. I agree that uh, it has all been transformer right now and we are all caught up in the hype. Uh, we have had, to be honest, several waves of hypes when it comes to bio uh, we started because I was mentioning the, the need for privacy, the need for ownership. And so obviously at the top of the uh, crypto uh, blockchain hype a couple of years ago, it was all about blockchain applied to bio. And uh, it's not for say that this is over uh, because definitely beside the hype in itself, there is a strong need to for privacy. And so uh, the centralized system uh, with, uh, I would say, uh, encryption model, uh, definitely something that a lot of people have considered and are still considering. And I don't think that this is going to be going away. It's just the way that the entire, uh, I would say, industry sees it uh, as the one uh, growl, the one, uh, one size fit all, uh, technology that is going to be uh, taking over is misleading. And I think again that this notion of transformer that is going to be, this is the technology, the only one, I don't believe in that. Transformer is amazing. Definitely something that is ground uh, changing, but it's for me, it's going to be a combination of all of these different technologies because 
for example, after the uh, blockchain in bio wave, we had, for example, the need for federated learning and the need for to aggregate model in a very decentralized mm -hmm. and privacy-preserving uh, way. Mm -hmm. uh, that wave, again, has uh, gone and by, but the idea of federated learning is definitely not going to go away. And mm -hmm. we have had also the need for knowledge-based graph model. And so uh, knowledge uh, graph model uh, has mm -hmm. been something that has been kind of trendy, albeit not as uh, democratized as Transformer has been. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so for me, the future is going to be a combination of these technology and potentially future ones, new ones, because again, as you mentioned, uh, the power of computing is very important here. So that means new hardware development, new different model. Uh, we have new uh, way of thinking about the different uh, architecture model. We have, of course, traditional uh, models, but we have also now FPGA and, and TPUs that are being explored mm -hmm. as potential alternatives. So depending on the use cases, some of these architecture models might make even more sense than the others. But again, these require a huge amount of resources. And this is where Oracle Cloud and the other infrastructure players has a role to play because they are in charge of uh, leading that innovation and offering this innovation to the ecosystem because it's not going to be coming from us. We don't have the resources to do it. But once we have that, well, the possibilities are endless. Jonas, and that's the reason. Amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The possibilities are endless. So, uh, in my case, uh, I'm kind of uh, obsessed with bio and obsessed with space. So, I'm trying to fight, find this kind of fitting uh, area where it's bio in space, uh, mm. bio space, space in bio, bio in space. And mm. so, I've been kind of very, uh, very intrigued and, and very uh, in. in, in introverted and, and focusing on trying to explore this, but there is more than that. As I was saying, it's about everything that we produce or consume on earth. So mm -hmm. this is going to be amazing, amazing innovation. So yes mm -hmm. to that, really looking forward to that. And I'm yes. really uh, looking forward to keeping in touch with you uh, as director as ISV, because you're going to be at the forefront of it in terms of innovation. So uh, you will see me come back from time to time and just poke you on what's happening, what do you see, and uh, all the things moving on that. Very much looking forward to it, Loretta. Thank you. Thank, thank you for your time today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for today's recording. Uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you, do you have uh, uh, preferences? Uh, uh, of course, we'll be redirecting people to you if we have any contact. But uh, where can people join you if they want to learn more about Oracle infrastructure, uh, the ISV programs, what is in place, and uh, or if they just want to talk to you more about your own personal uh, adventure and uh, what it means? For sure, yeah. Uh, anyone can find me at, on on Twitter at Max Dunhill, or uh, on LinkedIn, or my email address is Max Dunhill at Oracle.com. Amazing, amazing. Thank you indeed for today's recording and looking forward to hear more about you. Bye, Max. Thank you, Loretta. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Next Sequence Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the letters from us, you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.